The children are dismissed for Children's Church this morning, so if you're in that demographic, you may leave. Also, if um, you have not received the friendship register that is on the aisles, you can pass that along right now. Um, We are in John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. As we think about John, there are these I am statements that are self-declarations of who Jesus is. This is the second I am statement that we find in the Gospel of John. We read about and heard about, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We're going to be reading John chapter 8, verses 12 through verse 30. Would you um, please hear the word of the Lord? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking up to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, so what do we have in front of us today is this declarative statement. Now, again, remember that Jesus, uh, all of this is happening around the Feast of the Booths. And this is the great uh, commemoration of the Exodus journey where God called the people out of slavery from Egypt and was leading them to the Promised Land. And they are celebrating the, um, the Feast of Booths, this, this feast of God's provision. And we saw two weeks ago that we had just talked about when Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he had just finished this, um, this uh, water rite or ritual where the water is poured out and it would be poured out in Jerusalem. And then eventually they were hoping that the water would go forward. Well, today Jesus actually talks about, I am the light of the world. And so let me, let me say this, we're going to, um, by introduction. So at the, the, um, the Feast of Tabernacles, 
you know, we see that the, this eight-day festival was one of three pilgrim feasts when all Israelites were to appear before the Lord. We see this. These times of remembrance in the life of Israel where they are to come to Jerusalem and they are to sing and worship and have a great party. Now, in the midst of this, let me, let me give you some insight as to what was going on at this feast. So many people came together to celebrate this feast. And some traditions developed over the years to illustrate its meanings. And one such tradition involved massive golden candlesticks. Huge. On the first day of the feast, there were, some would say three, some would say four. It all depends on on where you are. Um, Maybe they had three, maybe they had four. They would have three or four 75-foot high candlesticks that were erected in the temple in the court of women where the treasury was located, okay? So these candlesticks, 75 feet tall. These are huge candlesticks. And they were uh, erected in the temple in the court of women where the treasury was located. So everybody's giving their tithes and offerings, and you have these enormous candlesticks. Now, on the night of the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the outer court of the temple was brilliantly illuminated with four gold, three or four golden lamps, these candles, each containing about 120 logs of oil, in which were burning the old girdles and garments of the priests. So the, the priests would actually make the wick for these candlesticks out of their priestly garments, and they would, um, on these tall candles, they would light up everything. And this is what it was said um, about this. The illumination that would happen in the temple was like a sea of fire. It lit up every nook and corner of Jerusalem. It was so bright that in any part of the city, a woman could pick wheat from the chaff. Whoever did not see the celebration never really saw one, is what uh, they would say. Now these, these celebrations, the celebration of these, this, these candles would, would continue on for seven full days. Then the lights were extinguished on the eighth and final day of the feast for a holy and solemn assembly. So when Jesus it says, I am the light of the world, He is going to a place where at this point the celebration is over and the light of these candles has been extinguished. And when the lights were extinguished in the court of the women from these tall, I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, young priests uh, would actually put ladders up and then they would have to shimmy up all the way to the top of the candlesticks in order to actually light these. And again, it was this illumination that occurred. And then when the lights were extinguished, what the people were thinking was the lights are extinguished and we're looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come. Because right now, we're in darkness, and we're hopeful that one day, one who was promised would show up on the scene, and he would begin to put all things right, and he would take us out of the subjugation of the Romans and actually establish his kingdom forever and ever. That's what we see. Now, in the midst of this, we see that you know, in, in this period, um, there, there has been darkness all the time. Now, we also, I don't know if you guys remember this, so let me tie this together. We also have a candle ritual here at our church. You know that, right? We do it every December 24th, Christmas Eve. And what we see is that the light of the world enters into the world. The light of the gospel, the light of life. 
And then what we see is, you know, and it's great too, because this is this rite of passage. And what's the song that we sing when we, when we sing this? What is it? Silent Night, right? So I asked them, um, yeah, like, let's sing Silent Night. We're going to sing Silent Night. So, so Ryan is going to sing, we're going to sing the first and the third verses of Silent Night. Okay? It's not Christmas, but we're going to sing it. Okay? You can stay seated. All right? Let's, uh, let's sing it. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so that not everybody in the nursery thinks the service is over as they heard the last song. But that's not the last song. But when you think about this last verse, when it said radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. You see, after 400 years of silence from the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, to the birth of Jesus, the Jews were waiting and they would celebrate the Feast of Booze and they would celebrate this with these great candlesticks and then there would be an extinguishing of the light and there would be darkness. And then when Jesus comes into the temple court and the remnants of these candlesticks was probably still around and he says and he declares, he goes, I am the light of the world. So everything that you've been hoping for is found in me. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when we think about the Old Testament, one of those, a few verses, let me just give you a couple of them that they're thinking about. In Psalm 27, a Psalm of David, it says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See, this light image was, was all over the Old Testament. And in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We also read in Micah chapter three, we talk about the people and what they're walking in in terms of darkness. 
When Micah says, therefore it shall be night to you, without vision and darkness to you, without divination, the sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. You see, when, in Micah chapter three, what he's foreshadowing or what he's prophesying is that there will be a time of great darkness where God is not speaking to the people of God. And so when Jesus is standing up at the Feast of the Booze and he says, I am the light of the world, that's all the Old Testament that we're seeing right there. He's fulfilling it. He's saying all of the Old Testament is pointing to me. Now, Jesus is the light of the world. And and really, there's no better way for me to say uh, what this sermon is about other than that. But we see this also that that Jesus is um, remembering, or, or the Apostle John, again, he writes what he writes so that everyone who believes in Jesus would have life in his name. And in John chapter six, he talks about your bread of heaven. I am the bread of heaven. In John chapter seven, he talks about if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And then in John chapter eight, he actually says, I am the light of the world. Now, those three images are actually talking about what happened in the Old Testament. Now, the, the women's uh, Bible study are actually doing the book of Exodus, so I'm gonna give you a little preview of what's going on here. Because what Jesus is saying is, you know, just like God provided manna in the wilderness, he's provided, he provided me for you. Just as he uh, brought water out of a rock, you know, I also will quench your thirst, your spiritual thirst. And in John chapter eight, he says this, he goes, the, um, again, how were the, the Israelites, how were they guided and protected in the midst of their wilderness wanderings? It was by light and a cloud. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Exodus chapter uh, 13. I'm gonna show this to you. Exodus chapter 13. So Jesus is alluding to all of this when he speaks about this. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, here's what it says. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. But not only did it give guidance, but if you just go over to Exodus chapter 14, look at Exodus chapter 14, look at verse 19. Then the angel of the Lord, and this is when they're crossing the Red Sea. This is when the the Egyptians realize, hey, we made a mistake and we gotta go after the Israelites and let's go get them. And so the, the Israelites feel as if they're gonna be slaughtered in the desert. And here's what happens. Here's how God protects them in verse 19 of chapter 14. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So this, this idea of the light is what Jesus is saying is in the Old Testament in chapter Exodus chapter 13 and 14, I am that light. Now, I want you to think about this. Now, the light, we understand the light at night because the light you know, lights up the darkness. But it's not a light during the day, it's a cloud. Now, why is it a cloud rather than a light leading them? Because they're in the desert. How many of you have ever been to the desert southwest? Anybody? You know what's glorious? Is when you have a little bit of a cloud cover over you. The cloud 
that covers over is actually protecting the people of Israel so they would not burn up in the midst of their desert wanderings. So the cloud is actually protective of the people of God. And the light is also guiding them. Now, when we think about these ideas, you know, it represents both guidance as well as protection. And for you know, many of us, we, we understand this, especially if you have um, small children. Um, how many of you um, have had your children um, get scared of the dark, <laughs> right? Your know, kids, kids um, will say, daddy or, or mom, like, please, I'm scared of the dark. You know, something's underneath my bed. Because kids have vivid imaginations, right? They'll say something's in my closet, something's in my bed. And what happens sometimes is, is that the light is needed to come on because it drives away the fear. You see, Jesus is saying, the light that I give is driving away the darkness. It's pushing it out. Now, um, just so you know, um, in the midst of driving away the darkness. Darkness here uh, represents immorality. Uh, darkness represents ignorance. Um, that's what darkness represents when we're talking about these things. Um, and, and when our children are scared of, of the dark, one of the things that we can do that I think is a misstep is this, is we can go in and we tell them, like, there's no such thing as monsters. There's no such thing. I think it's better for you to come in and say this, the light the light of the gospel drives these things far away. Or, I'm your dad, and as long as you stay near your father, I will protect you. Both of those are gospel truths because the light of the gospel does drive away the darkness. And your father who loves you will be with you as you traverse the darkness. Now, the reason I say that is because when we tell our small children that monsters aren't real, and, we, and I understand what you're saying, right? But there's gonna come a point in their life when the monsters, these little monsters that they have, they're gonna struggle with some of the larger monsters in their life. And some of those larger monsters that, can, that seek to devour them are things like this. Um, some of the enormous monsters today include addiction, or pain, or loneliness, or doubt, shame, or maybe you have deep bitterness of anger or frustration. Some of these little monsters have become larger and larger in your life, but your mom and dad told you that monsters weren't real, but it sure seems like some of these monsters that you're still dealing with. Think about this. How about a traumatic event? A traumatic event that occurs, I've, I've seen this among soldiers who've had traumatic um, brain injuries, traumatic events that have, that have occurred. I've seen it among people who have been abused, both physically and sexually. A traumatic event has occurred. And this traumatic event is like an encounter with death. Our past, present, and future are shattered by an all-consuming new reality that leaves indelible marks on body and soul personally and interpersonally. The hope we once knew seems to grow dark. Where is God in times of such profound tragedy, tragedy and how do we help others when they are in the depths of such suffering? I've encountered many uh, people 
even in, in the, we're not um, so naive to think that there have not been people here who have been affected by traumatic events. And those events make you feel very lonely and as if God does not care. And the darkness seems to just cover over everything we think about. In the midst of, um, I'll, I'll give you another one. How about depression? It is said that um, in the midst of depression that truth fades quickly when it competes with the chronic pain of depression. So how do we, how does the light work itself out in the midst of these traumatic events, in the midst of depression? Um, a blog by uh, a man named Ed Welch uh, said this uh, regarding, he did a survey of people who had struggled with depression and, and he asked them what, what is helpful in the midst of depression? How, how can the light of the gospel intervene? And, and, and really, how can the light of Christ you know, pursue this darkness and, and what he found was these people who had been struggling with depression for many years, um, their, their summation, there were four to things that they said were really, really helpful. Four things. Now, let me go over them really quickly. First, it's the light of scripture and truth. That in, even in the midst of their depression, they had to be in the word of God, hearing the truth of God, the promises of God, that God is good and that he cares for them and that he's not left them or forsaken them. And even when they didn't want to read the Bible, they made themselves read the Bible. Secondly, it says the light of communion with God in prayer. So not only the word of God, but also in prayer in the midst of depression, the light of the gospel you know, intercedes and, and drives out the darkness when we commune with our Father in prayer, when we cry out to him, when we ask God, why, Father? Why is this so hard? Why do I feel alone? Lord, what is going on that these things are so difficult? Third, it said, the light that is reflected by godly brothers and sisters who walk with them. Now, here's the, the reality of depression. Depression isolates people. Being depressed is very lonely, but we need other people. But when it feels Herculean just to get out of bed, who can seek out friends? If you push yourselves towards others, you could receive both good and bad. People indeed come with risks, but for most of the respondents in the survey, the risk was worth taking. When in doubt, one respondent said, I do the exact opposite of how I feel. If I feel like being alone, I try to get out. It also said, you know, tell someone that you're depressed. That is a small, risky, yet doable step. It might feel like you are coming out of hiding and acknowledging something hideous or shameful, but tell someone. If you have no idea who to tell, tell your pastor. Among those who responded, there was a chorus that never stopped singing the same refrain, don't isolate, don't isolate, don't be alone. You see, what happens with the darkness of this world is that we become very, very lonely I mean, we are living in days today where it is the loneliest culture in America that we've ever seen, and yet we are the most connected culture via the internet. The, the, um, the last thing, and this was just, it said that we, those who struggle with trauma or depression, the light of wise routines, reading my Bible, coming to church, being in Bible study, the rhythm and patterns that God has given us are meant so that we 
can receive grace all the time. We need that. But Jesus, in the midst of this, but the light of Jesus makes these things scatter. When we encounter Jesus, he brings peace and he can bring reconciliation from anger. He can bring community in the midst of isolation. He can bring joy in the midst of bitterness and anger. This is what the light of the gospel does. The, but <laughs> let me say this about the light of the gospel, that the light of the gospel can be painful to us when we get used to the darkness. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. Are we enamored by immorality, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? Has our spiritual vision been obscured by these wicked things? The light of Jesus, when it comes in, the light of Jesus is painful to those of us who have become accustomed to the darkness. Um, let, me, let me give you a story like that, like this. Uh, there's a couple men in our church who need to be called out because they're wicked, evil men. I'm just gonna name them by names, okay? Uh, one is John Harvitt. Uh, one is Steve Flory. Now, these guys are both optometrists, and they love to do terrible things to your eyes. And, when it, when I, and my father-in-law is one of them. He's an ophthalmologist as well. And just this past week, I had to go see an ophthalmologist, and he dilated my eyes. That's a wicked, terrible thing. It's just like some sort of, I don't know, like some sort of Chinese torture book is what that is, right? Because what they do is they put you in a dark room, and they put you in a dark room, and they're like, okay, are you feeling pretty good? Let's put drops in your eyes that are gonna burn really bad. You know, I don't know why they continue to burn, but they just, can't they make them better than that? Um, but then they put these drops in your eyes, you're already mad, you automatically start crying, and then the doctor says, okay, it's dark. Now, let me, let me find my magnifying glass that as a child I used to burn ants with, and let me put a headlamp on, and let me hold your eye open so that I can actually look into your soul, you know, as I, as I, as I shine this. Now, I need, what I need you to do is I need you to keep your eye open as long as possible and stare at this light Trust me, it'll be good for you, right? And as you're doing this and your eyes are dilated, you're just crying. But that's what happens when we get accustomed to the darkness, when the light of the gospel comes into us. Sometimes it's so bright that we don't know what to do. But that light is meant, uh, again, you know, the reason that they dilate, dilate your eyes, and again, these are good guys, they just picked a bad career field, okay? Um, <laughs> I mean, this is what, you know, pupil dilation occurs, and, and here's what it does, and I, I love this. Pupil dilation occurs when the opening in the center of your iris grows bigger to let in more light, and under normal circumstances, pupils can dilate to let in more light or in response to a variety of stimuli. But during an eye exam, a doctor will administer these terrible drops to increase the size of a patient's pupils, but the eye, it says, is a beautiful organ. And it is the only place in the human body where a doctor can see a part of the central nervous system, the optic nerve. And seeing the optic nerve is a crucial part of a comprehensive eye exam so that he can register whether or not you have glaucoma or something called, you know, um, you know macular degeneration. You know, and there are two very common retinal diseases, diabetic uh, retinopathy or age-related macular degeneration. So they're, they're checking all of these things. And so that light is looking into your central nervous system to determine what is wrong or if you're healthy. That is also what the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does when he shines upon us. But if we have become accustomed to the dark, 
We've been a, become accustomed to our sin. The light is overwhelming, and yet it reveals that which we are clinging to. You see, the light of the gospel can be painful when we get used to the darkness. Now, when we think about this, Jesus is the light of the world that brings us life. When you go back to John chapter eight, one of the things that at the end of John chapter eight, verse 12, it says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus begins to interact with the Pharisees here. And the Pharisees, in verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, now remember, uh, remember back the, the Pharisees, if, if you just go back uh, from John chapter eight to John chapter seven, I just wanna show you this real quickly. You know, you'll see that there were divisions among the people at the very end of chapter seven. Um, we, we have that, you know, the authorities wanted to arrest Jesus, but they would not allow it because uh, it was not his hour yet. So the officers in verse 45 of chapter seven, the officers, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? And then in John chapter eight, verses one through 11, they try to test Jesus. They try to say, hey, you're not that smart. We're gonna get you in trouble with the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or with the Romans, depending on how you uh, adjudicate this matter with this woman caught in adultery. But Jesus is smarter than they are. And he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he does not condemn the woman. But he says, from now on, sin no more. So then they, they bring up, and Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees here, and, and they, they bring up this issue of, you know, they're trying to discredit his testimony. And it's not even a criminal trial here, but yet they're using criminal, you know, um, uh, language to, to try Jesus for what he believes. The, Jesus gets caught in all these monkey courts, really, throughout the Gospel of John. And he says, you know, I, you don't understand what's going on. Notice what he says there. Jesus says, where I come from, you do not know. My testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where, am I, where I am going. And here's what he says. I came from heaven and you didn't get it. And I'm going back to heaven and you don't know how to get there. And they're like, we don't understand what's going on. And, and, I, and I can understand that because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And look at verse 23. If, if you want to think that Jesus is a really nice guy who doesn't say controversial things, here's what he says in verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus twists this dagger where he says in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless... You believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the people are asking in verse 25, who are you? You see, one of the, the problems that was occurring with, with Jesus as, as he brings the light of the world to bear is that there are always people who want to basically take Jesus and say, well, I want Jesus on my side, right? Like, certainly Jesus would take my side of this argument. Or other people would say, Jesus will take my side. Now, let, me, um, uh, let me just make everybody mad now, okay? Might as well, right? Um, when we think about where we are as a country right now, uh, and we think politically, and I'm gonna get in trouble here, but okay, just bear with me, right? We have people who would, we would call maybe conservative, right? 
And people who are conservative want to retain the past and what is good from the past, and they don't want to lose it, okay, in general terms. And then we have people who would be considered progressive because they see some of the sins of the past and they think that we can get better as we move forward, as we grow, okay? So conservative versus progressive. Both of those sides of the equation, some people will say, well, Jesus would take my side. And other people would say, Jesus, no, 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 Jesus would take my side. You know what? Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. He wants everybody to fall and worship him. He came to take over everything. And so these Pharisees wanted the Messiah to take their side. They wanted a Messiah that would conform to their perspective of how the world would be. And Jesus blows it out of the water. What he does is he says, in me, you will find forgiveness. You have all been walking in darkness. You've been stumbling around like like tired new parents in the dark, walking on Legos. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you have done that and you thought, why did I ever buy my children Legos or toys at all, right? But Jesus says, but the light shines in the darkness. And he said, and you'll really understand this in verse 28. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, but I always do the things that are pleasing. In the midst of that, some people believed. You see, you know, let, me, let me quote um, James Smith, who was a pastor in 1860. And he, and he talks about the light of life. And so, so John talks about this idea that the light of life, and he talks about life as it pertains to Jesus in terms of trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus. And here's what he says. Uh, James Smith says this. He goes, what is enjoyed by this light of life? And here's what he says. They are delivered from the power of darkness. And though once total darkness, they are now light in the Lord. They are rescued from moral, legal, spiritual, and eternal darkness. They enjoy the living, enlivening spirit of Jesus. By this light, they discover the path that leads to glory and to God. They escape the snares, stumbling blocks, and pitfalls which are in their road, i.e. all of the Legos. Or the other thing that we trip over all the time is that we have a golden retriever in our, in our bedroom. He doesn't sleep in our bed. He sleeps around our bed. And so in, in, in the nighttime, as I get up, I have to very, you know, I kind of shuffle my feet to see where the dog might be, right? Because there have been times with either myself or Katie have actually tripped over our golden retriever and you know the light would be very helpful at this point. So he says, you know, so that we might not stumble, stumbling blocks and pitfalls which are on the road, but get this, but in the midst of this life that we're given that we enjoy the beautiful scenery around them and catch glimpses of the more beautiful scenery ahead of them. They discern the great object of life, the highest end of their existence, and are induced to pursue it. They rejoice in their deliverance from dangers and the great and glorious privileges that are conferred upon them. They have, they enjoy the light of life. 
You see, in the midst of this life, we're not just talking about eternal life, although that's, that's a part of it, that's a huge part of it, but when you come to faith in Jesus, there is a joy in this life as well. Because you see the transforming power of the gospel, you know, bringing faith to bear. You see, you know, um, love and, and the way that God has designed, and, and yes, this world is full of glorious ruins, but you begin to catch glimpses of what heaven will be like. They enjoy the beautiful scenery around them and catch glimpses of the more beautiful scenery ahead of them as the light of Jesus brings life to us. Again, those living in darkness are seeking to discredit Jesus. Now, let me say this um, last point. It's It's a brief point is that Jesus is the light of the world that his followers also reflect. So as Jesus shines upon us, we reflect the glory of Christ to those around us. We see this in in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Now, He's talking about to his followers there. He's talking to us. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, we should be reflecting the light of Jesus to all of those around us. We should reflect the peace of God. When people look upon our lives, do they see the peace of God which comes from believing and trusting in Jesus and does that emanate outward? Or do they see um, anxiety and frustration and bitterness? We should also reflect the love of God when we think about the, who God is and what Jesus has done and the light of the gospel bringing about forgiveness to those, um, to, to us, that should make us bestow forgiveness. It should make us want to tell others about Jesus. When we understand that um, we have done nothing to merit salvation, but only through the blood of Christ, only through, who, through his atoning sacrifice. Um, I was, um, I, um, in the midst of school, um, I, there are times when you, you'll, you'll take a test. Uh, I'm, I'm relating this to the gospel, okay? There's times when, when you get a test. Anybody here ever uh, take a class that was really super hard? Like, I don't know, like organic chemistry or, you know, something crazy hard, you know? Um, and in the midst of it, like you get your first exam and like you score like something really good on it, really well, like maybe a 40. <laughs> and then you begin to do the equation in your head. Well, if I have just, I have two more tests and if I, if I average, you know, uh, and maybe, maybe you get to the midway through the semester and you realize that your, your average is maybe, you, you've increased your average maybe to a 50 and you have one final test, and that final test is worth maybe 40% of your grade, and you're like, okay, so if I get 135 on this test, 
then I may be able to scrounge out a C in the midst of this, right? We see, you know, we do that. We, we always think that, you know, I'm going to be better. You know, like the world says, like, maybe I just have a little bit more time. I can equal out my grade with who God is. You see, the problem is God doesn't grade on a curve. You've got to score 100. And the other problem is he doesn't give you a progress report midway through because you're failing the whole time. You see, when we understand that only by the grace of God we are saved, only by the mercy of God are we given life in his name and given eternal promises that we can have through Jesus, then we, we recognize that we want to tell others about him. How about this one? Um, the, in terms of the reflecting the, the light of the gospel, we should reflect contentment, not in the world, but to the world around us. We should be different. With what you have, be content. If things are good, what does it mean to be content knowing that you are abiding in Christ, that the light of Jesus is shining in your life in such a way that you know that you are secure? Reflecting and shining. But the other thing that should happen too, and, and you know, this is the last song we sing at Christmas Eve, is we should reflect joy to the world. I mean, nobody on this planet should be more joyful than a sinner saved by grace. There should be a smile upon us that is overwhelming to the world. People should walk around and go, why are you so happy? And you can say it's because the joy of Christ and it doesn't matter your circumstance. I've seen people, you know, in the midst of great pain and suffering, but there's a joy about their soul, which is a testimony to the world, which says, I am secure because of all that Christ has done for me. Brothers and sisters, may we reflect the light of Jesus, but we can only reflect the light of Christ if we stay connected to him and abide with him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would not yearn for this world or what it offers us, that we would not be um, caught up in the darkness of sin, but that we would find great joy in Christ. And so, Father, oftentimes and maybe sometimes the gospel light that shines within us may be painful, but it is necessary so that we might know what, what sin ails us. And Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would lead a life of faith and repentance. And I pray, Lord, that as we live a life abiding in you, that we would have great joy. Father, I pray that the world would not outjoy us. So Father, help us to sing, not just with our lips, but with our souls of all that you have done. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.